Recently, my family and I visited Frankfurt. We had a free day, and we thought, why not? Let's go to the state capitol. And so we went to the capitol. If you've never been, it's a pretty cool building, lots of cool things to see. Um, and uh, we, we took the tour, and in the hour-long tours, we walked around the building, and they talked about how our state government works, and we saw the office of the governor and the Senate chamber and the House chamber and all the rest. At one point, there was a, a particular kid on the tour who was very interested and had lots of questions uh, related to the tour and questions not related to the tour. Uh, but at one point, he pointed out uh, the seal for the state of Kentucky, which was on the carpet into the, the Senate chamber. And uh, the flag is, for our state is on the screen, you can see there, which includes the state seal. And uh, people think that's Daniel Boone. Apparently, it's not. But it is, we were told by the tour guide, it's the frontiersman and it's the, uh, uh, the statesman. And when the, when the Commonwealth of Kentucky was established, there was this push to say, we need to unite together as the statesmen, as the frontiersmen, Kentucky still being a frontier at the time, uh, we need to work together. And so this image was adopted, the statement around it, united we stand, divided we fall, was adopted as our state motto. The idea being we need to bring these two sides together. If we don't, we're going to struggle as a state. But if we do, if we can work together, if we can be united, then we will be successful. And we recognize the need for unity. We understand culturally, we understand intuitively the problems that disunity brings. So what is the basis of unity? Now, there's a lot of things that we might appeal to. In our world today, uh, many people like to focus on the concept that we're one human family as the basis of an appeal to unity, right? We are one big human family. We all come from one source, right? Coldplay captures this in a song called Arabesque. Uh, it's a song that they've written in response to racial injustices and prejudices and cultural divisions. And this song rejects all of those things, rightly so, uh, and offers a case for unity when they repeat the line over and over, we're of the same blood. We're from the same blood. We're from the same blood. We're from the same blood. They keep repeating this over and over as this basis to say we need to set aside all the divisions because we're one family. Now, for the believer in Jesus Christ, indeed, we are of the same blood but not in the sense that Coldplay envisions. Yes, we are physically related as a people, perhaps more than our culture even wants to acknowledge. But for those in Jesus Christ, we share a different and infinitely more important blood that unites us, the very blood of Jesus Himself. Because His blood was willingly poured out for us on the cross for the remission of our sins. And for those who trust in His death and in His resurrection, we are united together in Jesus Christ as the redeemed. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We have been united together in Jesus Christ. Believers in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters, we are God's people his own personal possession. And God has graciously given us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to remind us of the unifying power of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so tonight, as we continue the series that we've been in this summer, Family, Friends, and Faith, tonight we're going to dive in a little deeper in our understanding of the Lord's Supper. And I want to take a few minutes to clarify what the Lord's Supper is. And then I want to focus on one particular reality that sometimes we overlook, we don't often think about, but it's very important and has great benefit to us as we receive the Lord's Supper. So let's start tonight with the first question. What is the Lord's Supper? Now, there's a lot we could cover here. 
for the sake of time, I'm only going to hit on a few things. I would encourage you to study the scriptures, read good books about the Lord's Supper, dive into what it's all about. There's so much here when we participate together. Uh, but before we really dive into what it is, I think there's an important distinction. We need to define what it is not. And particularly, I have in mind the doctrine of transubstantiation. Particularly, this is a, a Roman Catholic idea, a theology in their practice. And this is the idea that when the priest uh, receives the elements at the altar, he lifts the bread, he lifts the wine, he consecrates those, he lifts the, the, the bread and he says, hoc est corpus meum, which is Latin for this is my body. And it's believed in Catholic theology that as the priest makes that statement, that little wafer is transubstantiated, the substance of it changes into a literal flesh of Jesus Christ. And then when he raises the wine and, 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 uh, and says whatever the phrase is he says there, it's turned into the literal blood of Jesus. But, well, incidentally in the 1600s, I think this is kind of funny, some performers of sleight of hand would use the phrase hocus pocus as a kind of magic trick, right? And we know that phrase, right? Hocus pocus. And there are a lot of linguists who believe that hocus pocus comes from hoc est corpus meum. Because when he would hold it up, it was like this sleight of hand. Suddenly it's bread. Oh, nope. Now it's flesh. It was like this magic trick that the people saw. Anyway, that's beside the point. In this view, which is really the core of the Roman Catholic Mass, we are literally re-crucifying Jesus for our sins. Uh, the sins that we committed since the last time we took the Mass. But biblically, we know that that's not necessary, right? In fact, at its root, it's really a rejection of the gospel. Because in Hebrews it says, and by that will or by that covenant, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that, from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified by a single offering. The author of Hebrews doesn't want us to miss this. Jesus has done it all. There is no need anymore for any additional sacrifice. And so as Protestants, we reject transubstantiation. When we partake of the elements here in a few minutes, this is not the literal body or blood of Jesus. So what is it? Well, there's a few things we can say tonight. First of all, we want to remember that it's a memorial. We understand this significance culturally, right? We have monuments and practices to remind us of significant events in our world so that we don't forget those things, the things that are important, things that have shaped us as a culture, perhaps have shaped us as a nation or as a people. For example, again, we were in Frankfurt, and in the, the rotunda of the Capitol, there's a larger-than-life statue of Abraham Lincoln. And we would agree that that's, that's an important memorial, right, for the significance that he was, uh, a Kentuckian born in the state of Kentucky, and, and we know all that he did as a president. It's good for us to memorialize his work. We have cultural practices and celebrations, things that we do culturally to remember significant events in the past. Think about Thanksgiving. We eat turkey to remember uh, the, the pilgrims and God, how he had provided for them as a reminder how he continues to provide for us. We have these memorials to remind us of significant people and places and things. And the Lord's Supper as well serves as a memorial, not just of a significant event, but of the most significant event in the history of the world. And this is why we often call it the Lord's Supper, because it remembers the supper that the Lord had with his disciples the night that he was betrayed. 
Paul reminds us that in 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's the memorial. And he, keep, he goes on. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that proclamation to one another and to the world is a memorial of what Jesus has done for us. Now, sometimes we hear the Lord's Supper table described as the Eucharist. It's a word that means thanksgiving. And we take the meal in a posture of gratitude, a posture of worship, right? Unto the Lord for his favor towards us. As we remember what he has done, it should well up within us a sense of gratitude. So we participate in the Lord's Supper with a sense of Eucharist, right? So it's not transubstantiation, but it is a memorial. It's also a sacrament. That is, it is a gift given by God to the church which serves to provide for spiritual nourishment. And Jesus himself in John 6 said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds in my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus doesn't want us to miss it. He says it over and over and over. If you feed on my flesh, if you, feed on my, if you, if you drink my blood, if we take the bread, if we drink the wine, we are receiving a participation in Christ. The Lord's Supper serves as a, a kind of spiritual nourishment, similar to receiving the Scriptures as they are preached or, or when we're baptized, because Jesus is spiritually present when we participate in the Lord's Supper, even if not physically present in the elements or, or otherwise. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is, not a part, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a particip participation in the body of Christ? We are participating in Christ himself. So if we reject transubstantiation, then how are we to understand Jesus' presence in the Lord's Supper? Well, I like what Charles Hodge said. He said, it's a mystery of Christ's secret union with the devout, which is by nature incomprehensible. If anybody should ask me how this communion takes place, I'm not ashamed to confess that that is a secret too lofty for either my mind to comprehend or my words to declare. In other words, how is Jesus present? I don't know, but he is. He is here with us when we participate. We may not be able to explain it, but for those of us who are in Christ, when we have taken the Lord's Supper in the past, we know the unique spiritual encouragement that comes when we eat the bread and drink the cup. I mean, we know that from COVID, right, where we went weeks and weeks and weeks, months even, where we couldn't take the Lord's Supper together. And when we finally took it again, this is the special moment that that was. We know that the Lord is present in that. So it's not transubstantiation. It is a memorial. It's a sacrament. 
but it is also an act of corporate worship. It's an act of corporate worship. There's another word that we often use when we talk about the Lord's Supper, and it's communion. And this is where I really want to focus the rest of our time tonight. Often we focus on the individual experience of the Lord's Supper. This blood is poured out for you, right? That's singular. It's, it's personal. Now, that is gloriously true. We don't want to diminish that reality. Interestingly, though, think about what Jesus says in Matthew 26. It says, he took the cup, and when he had gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for who? Poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus' emphasis, even in his institution, as Matthew records it for us, is not on the individual, but it's poured out for many. It's on the corporate side of it. And a reality that we often miss or that we minimize or we neglect when we take the Lord's Supper is an acknowledgement and an understanding that the union being supported in our participation is not simply our union with Jesus. Yes, it is that, absolutely. But it also has a horizontal dimension to it. We are also supporting and reinforcing our union with one another when we take the Lord's Supper. That's why we sometimes call it communion. You hear the, the similarity in the words, right? We are participating in communion. We are in community with Christ, but also with one another. Now, how are we participating in Christ? I'm going to quote B.B. Warfield. Just listen. All right. It's a little heady, but we'll get through it. Everyone who partook of the sacrificial feast, and here he's talking about Passover. Everyone who partook of the sacrificial feast had communion with the altar. Those who ate of the sacrificed victim, that is the lamb, became thereby participants in the benefits attained by the sacrifice. Only one or two of the household, perchance, bore the paschal lamb to the temple and were engaged in its sacrificial slaying. All those who partook of, partook of the feast, however, were alike the offerers of the sacrifice and its beneficiaries. This is the fundamental law of the sacrificial feast, perfectly understood by our Lord's first disciples who had been bred under a sacrificial dispensation and instinctively felt its implications, but needing to be kept with some effort carefully in mind by us to whom these things are strange and without natural significance. And here's the key. We participate in Christ when we feast at the Lord's table. We are identifying with his sacrifice. What did he just say? All right. In other words, there's a fundamental understanding when a sacrifice was offered at the temple that the one who is offering the sacrifice was himself or herself identifying with the sacrifice offered. Remember, these sacrifices are offered as a substitute, right? In the place of my sin. So if I go to the temple and I'm offering this sacrifice, it's being offered in my place. I'm not personally burned on the altar, right? It's the sacrifice that's burned on the altar. The lamb is burned. The lamb takes the penalty, but I receive the benefit, right? Now, when the feast was prepared, the Passover feast, all who ate of the burnt offering were saying, in effect, I am participating in this sacrifice. I'm eating the flesh of the sacrificial lamb, and by participating in it, I am receiving the benefits the sacrifice offers. So maybe you're at the Passover meal, and you didn't go to the temple. The head of your household went to the temple and sacrificed the lamb and brought the meat back, and you are participating in eating that meat. By doing so, you are now identifying with that sacrifice that was made, and you are receiving its benefits. So let's connect that to the Lord's Supper then. 
When we take the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper, we are, in a picture, eating the flesh and the blood of Jesus. Not literally, of course, but a memorial. And we are identifying ourselves personally with that sacrifice. And we receive the benefits of the sacrifice. Now, as an aside, this is part of what makes eating meat sacrificed to idols such a scandal that Paul talks about. If you made a sacrifice to a false god and now you're eating that meat, you are identifying yourself with that idol. And Paul addresses that uh, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 8. That's a topic for another day. Uh, but that's part of the scandal there. By taking that meat, by eating that sacrifice, I am participating in that sacrifice. But Warfield helps us by reminding us that we are united with Christ and this uniting with Jesus is remembered in our participation in the Lord's Supper. But there's a further reality we have to acknowledge with that because when we participate in Christ, it is a sharing with one another. And so Hebrews 3, it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Who is sharing in Christ? We is sharing in Christ. Who is we? Believers in Jesus Christ, you and me. It's not simply that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. Yes, we do. But the author of Hebrews is reminding us that we've been personally saved so that we may share Christ together. Now, in order to share something, it requires more than one person, right? We can't share something if there's not somebody to share it with, but we come together to share in Christ. So we are unified in Christ, one body, a people for his own possession. And when we participate in the Lord's Supper, we commune not only with Jesus, but we commune with one another. And this is an often neglected facet of the Lord's Supper and, and of our gathered corporate worship. I've remarked with some people before that there's, there's a special dynamic, and oftentimes we can't really put our finger on it, but when we gather in corporate worship, there's a, a special quality and experience that marks our gathered worship, something that's not present uh, when you read your Bible at home, when you listen to a sermon podcast, when you're listening to worship music on Spotify, when you're, even when you're watching a live stream, as good and helpful as those things can be. I think Tom Nettles captures the dynamic well. He writes, though many individual disciplines advance growth in grace and holiness of life, none can proceed to Christian maturity apart from the corporate fellowship of the church. Gifts are supplied by the Spirit for the edifying of the body of Christ. In that context, we come to unity in the faith. Unity makes necessary a plurality of persons moving into the sharing of the same mind and the same affection. In other words, if we're going to be unified, it requires more than one person moving in the same direction. Attaining to the perfect man, speaking the truth in love, being joined and knit together, and edifying of itself in love, all come in the dynamic interaction of many people responding to the effective working of every member of the body doing its share. Only with body life do we have mature life. You simply can't grow as a Christian in maturity apart from the gathered worship of God's people. Now, Philip reminded us a couple of weeks ago that there's no such thing as an isolated Christian. We are created for community. And the gathered worship of the church reminds us of, it reinforces, and indeed gives us the opportunity to practice the reality and thereby receive the benefits that God has for us in gathered worship. And this gives us a new perspective, doesn't it, when we think about Jesus' words in Matthew 5 when he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I think that's part of what Paul has in mind when he says, when he warns us against partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. We need to be reconciled with one another because the picture here is is a united body. And if there's division, we need to reconcile that division as we partake together. To give the Lord acceptable worship means in part that we are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. But we need to press it just a little bit further. Now this expression of this gathered body is the local church, united together in membership under biblically qualified pastors and elders. And these men are provided for the protection and safeguarding of the church, for accountability to godliness and growth of its members. And so the Lord's table is, in a sense, guarded by these men. And that's why here at Ninth and O, the pastors and the deacons lead our Lord's Supper times and distribute the elements to the church. We, as the pastors and the deacons, are serving you as those, Hebrews 13 reminds us, who are accountable for your souls before God. We understand that partaking of the Lord's Supper is a solemn privilege. It's for those who have identified themselves with Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. It's for those who have followed Him in obedience and baptism, specifically immersion after a profession of faith in Jesus. Refer to Adam's message last week. It's for those who have placed themselves under the care, protection, and guidance of their pastors through formal church membership. Being united together in these realities, the Lord's Supper then encourages us to lean into our gospel community. We are united to one another, knit together in our common cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, if you are a follower of Jesus, trusting in his death and resurrection alone to save you from your sins, if you followed him in baptism, and if you're a member in good standing of a local church, either here at Ninth and O or or a like-minded evangelical church, then we invite you to participate with us in the Lord's Supper. In a few minutes, the men will come forward and we'll distribute. If you have a gluten intolerance, we have the elements back here for you. Our pastor will be back there, and he will be happy to serve you. Please uh, hop up and grab one. If you've not yet followed Jesus as your Savior, then simply let the plate pass you by. If you haven't been baptized, uh, Ray Dell, Leon Machado, who is a member of the worship team and one of our deacons, will assist me at the table in a few minutes as the men come forward to serve. But as we participate together in the Lord's Supper, we are participating in Jesus himself. He nourishes us, he strengthens us, he guides us, and he strengthens and guides us to one another. So tonight, when we take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, as we take the bread and the juice together, it's a partaking in Jesus, but let's look around at one another. See your brothers and sisters. See those who are in Christ and be encouraged by them. And so I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and as I do, I invite the the men and the worship team to come forward, and then we'll partake together. Father, we do thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for us, his body that was broken. We thank you for the privilege and joy it is to partake together of the Lord's Supper, Lord, as your people, those who have been bought by this very blood, who have been raised again to newness of life. Lord, as we partake together tonight, remind us of the goodness that you've given us in Christian community. Remind us of the blessing that community is, the brothers and sisters united together in Jesus who partake one another in your blood, in your body, who have received the benefits of your crucifixion and your resurrection that unites us together that we might encourage and strengthen and build one another up in faith. And so, Lord, as we partake together now, we ask that you'd be glorified in us and among us, we pray in Jesus' name.